Well, it's good to be back here again together this morning. A couple of weeks ago, we finished the letter of Paul to Titus, and we're going to wait until August uh, to start a new study, a new series. But what I wanted to do this morning is is take an eschatological text and and look at it, particularly in light of the interest in eschatology that has been growing over the recent months and years. And that, of course, is a great thing. Uh, there is much in both the Old and New Testaments about eschatology, far more than what we typically recognized. As we see, for example, the Apostle Paul uh, on his missionary journeys planting new churches as he's preaching the gospel and strengthening the souls of the disciples, we see him repeatedly coming back to eschatological themes. In fact, we see that even in his letter to the Thessalonians. Paul had been in Thessalonica for just a short period of time and then in an untimely manner was forced from the city and therefore separated from that church. And yet in their infancy, we see their faith already described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 as those who had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son, Jesus who rescues them from the wrath to come. Even in that very new church, there is an eschatological vibrancy. And and so it's very good for us as well to be reminded of these things regularly, far more often than we probably are. And so I want to turn our attention to an eschatological text this morning and use the opportunity to ground us a little bit further in what God has revealed. Now, he has revealed truths about future things for several purposes. First, for our own holiness. We can read, for example, in 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, that that by focusing our attention on the future coming of Christ and his appearance, we ourselves in the present time are purified. Moreover, it is necessary for our own encouragement, our encouragement in the trials and challenges of this present age. Paul speaks of that in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 18 as he comforts those who are mourning the death of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, encourage one another with these words, in other words, the words of future things. So, as I said, what we want to do this morning is look at a very crucial eschatological text in the book of Revelation. And as I go through this, I want to remind you that I do put these slides online. You can go to gracechurch.org and look for Commissioned, our fellowship group, and then look for this particular sermon, which I am entitling The Reign of the Last Adam, A Case for the Future Millennial Reign of Christ. Look for that sermon, and you'll have the opportunity then to download the slides so you can see the the quotes and the information, the graphics that I put on these slides. The text I want to look at, and we're going to read it, it begins in Revelation 19, verse 11, and goes all the way to uh, Revelation 20, verse 6. The Apostle John writes this, 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, 
and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen and white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both great men and slaves, the small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the throne, or who, excuse me, who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain is in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And he came, and, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest, did not, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years years. Now, the study that I want to take you through this morning, I'm entitling The Reign of the Last Adam, A Case for the Future Millennial Reign of Christ. The text that I just read, particularly chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, has been the source of much controversy among believers for many, many centuries. We read, first of all, in Revelation 19, verse 11 to 21, of the second coming of Christ. And in what we read in those verses, really there's no debate. Uh, the text is taken in a straightforward manner. It's taken as prophetic, as a description of the coming reign of Christ, the coming rule of Christ, the the, the coming of, of Christ to, to meet his enemies and to destroy all those who oppose him. But what receives the controversy, or those verses over which 
good men debate is what we find in chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, the description of the millennial reign of Christ. And this text is disputed not because of the words that it contains. There's no difficult words really in this text, nor is it debated because of the grammatical structure of the text, as if there is some kind of ambiguity there in in the way that our writer John puts this text together, but rather the debate is over theological pre-understandings that are brought to this text. For many, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 6 simply is not a good text from which to draw theology. For example, Louis Burkhoff, in his manual on hermeneutics, principles of biblical interpretation, he writes this about Revelation chapter 20. He says, quote, when a doctrine is supported by an obscure passage of scripture only and finds no support in the analogy of faith, it can only be accepted with great reserve. Possibly, not to say probably, the passage requires a different interpretation than the one put on it. See Revelation 20, verses 1 to 4, end quote. In other words, for Burkhoff, because the same description is not mirrored, is not repeated elsewhere in Scripture previously to this text, it cannot be used as a basis for establishing a doctrinal position. Ian Murray, in his work on the Puritan hope, he writes this of this text. He says this, quote, In view of the total absence of supporting evidence from the New Testament, it is exceedingly hazardous to claim that a thousand years intervene between Christ's coming and the end of the world on the grounds that Revelation 20 teaches a millennium. In other words, Ian Murray says, that because we don't find the same terminology, the same descriptions described the same same way, using words such as a thousand years elsewhere, it is what he calls, quote, exceedingly hazardous, end quote, to suggest that we can take from Revelation chapter 20 the view that Christ will come and rule literally, physically on this earth for a thousand years. It is, as I repeat, according to Ian Murray, exceedingly hazardous to make that claim. Well, what I want to look at this morning is, is it that obscure? Is it that hazardous to look at Revelation 20 and to draw from it our eschatological convictions? Well, to start off with, we have to look at some key terms and and concepts. First of all, We hear the term eschatology. You'll hear the term eschatology used a lot this morning. I want to briefly describe that. Very simply, eschatology is the study of the last things. Eschatology refers to that discipline of of the study of future things. The term eschatology comes from the Greek adjective eschatos, which means last or final. So eschatology refers to the study of the last or the final things. Now, in the study of eschatology, particularly as it relates to Revelation 19 and 20, we're dealing with several pivotal issues here. 
And in particular, we're dealing with these two issues. These are the issues over which there is so much debate. First, the timing of the second coming of Christ in relation to the millennial reign described in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. In other words, we all agree that there is a second coming of Christ, and it is still future. But the issue is, how do we relate that second coming of Christ described in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21, how do we relate that event with this reign, which John says is for a thousand years, with this reign described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. How do we relate those two events, those two descriptions, the second coming and this millennial reign in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 20? That's the first pivotal issue, the relationship between those two events. And then secondly, the second pivotal issue relates to the nature of this millennial rule. What We all will agree that there is some kind of rule of Christ that is described here in Revelation 20. Now, putting aside its relationship to the event described in Revelation 19, the second coming, putting that aside for just a moment, how do we understand the millennial rule in its nature? What does that rule look like? That is the second main issue over which different eschatological views debate. And in response, you have three primary views that are offered in response to these pivotal issues. First of all, you have the view of premillennialism. Secondly, you have the view of amillennialism. And thirdly, you have the view of postmillennialism. Premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. Premillennialism being the the, the oldest view traced back to the early church, amillennialism coming into establishment around the 4th or 5th centuries AD, and then postmillennialism really coming into an established system during the time of the Puritan era. Now, how do we understand uh, the, these three views? Well, what's key with each of these views is to look at the prefix that is attached to the word millennialism pre-millennialism, amillennialism, and post-millennialism. Pre, ah, and post, those prefixes essentially describe the view of the millennial that is advocated by each position. Let's go through each one of those uh, so that you can get a better idea of what these three positions uh, hold. First of all, pre-millennialism. What is pre-millennialism? Note the prefix. Essentially, Premillennialism teaches that Christ's second coming occurs immediately before, pre, his millennial rule. Christ's second coming occurs immediately before his millennial rule, and that's communicated by that prefixed pre right before or right onto the word millennialism. Christ's second coming occurs immediately before his millennial rule. So if you look at the screen here, you can see we all agree of the first coming of Christ. His first advent dealt with the issue of atonement, the cross, paying the penalty for the sin of all who would ever believe. 
But even as Christ then ascended after his first advent, he promised his second coming. And according to premillennialism, the second coming of Christ occurs in a natural sequence here in Revelation 19 and 20. He comes right before or right at the start of his millennial reign. And this view takes Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, literally, and it takes it as chronologically uh, subsequent to the event described in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 comes first, then Revelation 20, the second coming, leads to the millennial reign. And then after the millennial reign, you have Revelation chapter 21 and 22, which describe the new heavens and the new earth. That's premillennialism. And it takes a very straightforward reading of these final chapters of the book of Revelation. Then you have amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches that Christ's second coming occurs without a literal millennial rule. Look at the prefix to the word millennialism in amillennialism. It's the, it's the negation, ah, amillennialism, which in some ways you, you could take it as, as essentially saying there is no millennium, Ah, millennialism, but that's not really how amillennialists will frame their position. Instead, amillennialism teaches that there is no literal millennial reign of Christ. There's no literal thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. That will not exist. Instead, amillennialism takes Revelation 20 as essentially figurative in nature, spiritual in nature. It's not literal. It's not sequential in reference to Revelation 19. And so the millennial reign that is described in Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 is essentially describing the church age. There is no specific time uh, that we can uh, attribute to it. As we know already, the church has existed for almost 2,000 years since the day of Pentecost. Christ is already fulfilling Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6 at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning, and he is fulfilling all that is described in those verses in Revelation 20. That's the view of amillennialism. There there is a rule of Christ. Uh, There is a reigning of Christ without any literal millennial reign. Now, postmillennialism shares some similarities with amillennialism. Postmillennialism, look again at the prefixed word there, post. Postmillennialism teaches that Christ's second coming occurs immediately after the millennium. Postmillennialism. Christ's second coming occurs immediately after the millennial. Millennium. Well, how does that look then? Well, we again agree with the first coming of Christ. But post-millennialists will have different renditions of this. Some will take the thousand years more literally. Others will take it less literally. But the general view is, is that the gospel will spread throughout the world and eventually Christianize the entire world. The world will be gospelized so that the, the rule in every nation, in every tribe, in every people— The rule will be the gospel rule. In other words, the Great Commission will eventually bring in this period of Christ ruling through his church over all 
the world. This means essentially that the United Nations will become Christianized. The United Nations will be ruled by the gospel and that Christ will rule through the church ruling over every nation on the face of this planet. And as a result of that rule, Christ will come at the end of that millennial reign of the church. The church will rule, the gospel will rule over all the nations, the gospel will become the the view of, of all parliaments, of all legislatures, of all peoples, of all tribes around the world, and that as a result of that reign after the thousand years whether literally or figuratively taken, Christ will come at the very end and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. There's also a fourth view that we could add. We can call it pan-millennialism. And pan-millennialism is a very, very popular view. It's, it, it's the view that says, who really knows? The Bible is obscure. It's ambiguous. It'll all just pan out in the end. And so this view essentially says eschatology is a, is a matter of very, very small significance for the Christian life. We have to focus on being obedient now and let things just take place the way God wants them to. It will all pan out in the end. That's pan-millennialism. Well, as you know, what we are going to look at this morning is a defense of premillennialism. And what I want to do now, having covered those introductory issues, is provide you with five arguments in defense of premillennialism, five arguments in defense of the view that Christ, as the last Adam, will return to this world physically and finish that unfinished business that Adam, the first Adam, was not able to. To do So five arguments now in defense of the reign of the last Adam as a, as a, literal, a, a, a literal reign, according to Revelation 20, a premillennial view. First, the first argument in defense of premillennialism, taking a look at Revelation 19 and 20, is this, the sequence of the visions, the sequence of the visions. Beginning in Revelation 19, verse 11, and going all the way to Revelation 20, verse 8, we have this series of visions. For example, look at 19, verse 11. As you look at your Bibles, you see that verse 11 of chapter 19, the section that begins the description of the second coming of Christ, begins with these words, and I saw. We could look at the same In Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, and I saw. Again, you have the same wording beginning in chapter 20, verse 1. In fact, when we look at those two terms, 19 verse 11 describing the second coming of Christ, 20 verse 1, the vision describing the the reign of the thousand years of Christ, Both of those begin with a very important formula that the Apostle John uses to describe every new vision that he sees. It's the Greek construction, kaiedon, kaiedon, and or then I saw. And John in this series, beginning in 
in, in 19 verse 11 all the way into chapter 20 has this series of Kai Adon. In fact, it occurs eight times. It occurs multiple times throughout this entire book. But in this section in particular, it occurs eight times, beginning in verse 19, verse 11 of nine, chapter 19, all the way to the start of the vision of chapter 20, verse 1 of the new heaven and the new earth, eight times in those two chapters. So as you look at the screen, I, I have the the uh, the visions now listed, beginning in 19 verse 1, going all the way to 21 verse 1, there are eight instances of this formula, kaedon, and I saw. Now, for the most part, we take all of those as describing sequential visions. However, the issue is, in the middle of these visions, there are two kaedons. And I saw two visions, one beginning in chapter 20, verse 1, and another beginning in chapter 20, verse 4. These are part of the visions related to the millennial reign of Christ. Now, all millennial positions agree with the sequential nature of the visions listed here in chapter 19 and uh, all the way through to chapter 21, except these two in the first half of Revelation chapter 20. Now, premillennialists will take these visions as all sequential in nature. Go, beginning in 19 verse 11, the vision there, and then 19 verse 17, and then 19 verse 19, 20 verse 1, 20 verse 4, 20 verse 11, 20 verse 12, 21 verse 1, Kai Adon, 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 Kai Adon. And I saw, 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 and I saw eight times. And premillennialists will treat that all sequentially. All millennialists and postmillennialists, however, contend that these two visions, the one beginning in 20 verse 1 and the second beginning in 20 verse 4, are out of order. They don't belong in the sequence. And so, chronologically speaking, amillennialists and postmillennialists will take these two visions out of the sequence and then place them prior in chronology to the vision that begins in 19 verse 11. And you might ask, on what basis do they make that judgment? Well, it isn't based on on any grammar. It's not based on anything unusual in the wording of those two Kai-Adon visions. There's nothing syntactically, nothing lexically, nothing grammatically to suggest that John is highlighting these two visions, the first of 20 verses 1 to 3 and the second of 20 verses 4 to 10, as somehow being out of order. Instead, the decision to take these visions out of order is made purely on the basis of theological pre-understandings. In response, Craig Blazing says this, quote, Many of these commentators, speaking of amillennialists or postmillennialists, many of these commentators discount any predictive significance to these visions. So the one of, of 20 verses uh, 1 to 3 and, and 20 verses 4 to 10. He continues, that is not surprising given their view 
that biblical prophecy and apocalyptic is mythological. It is noteworthy, however, that when the issue of theological or historical significance is suspended and the question is strictly one of literary nature, there is general agreement that the events of the visions of 19 verse 11 through 21 verse 8 are correlative with or consequent to the parousia of 19 verse 11. In other words, what what Blazing is saying is that you take away the theological pre-understandings and, and just look at the literature of these chapters, chapter 19, chapter 20, and, and chapter 21. Look at the syntax, the, the structure, and, 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 and just look at it purely from that level, and there is nothing to suggest that there is any vision that is out of sequential order. That's the argument of the sequence of visions, the first argument in favor of premillennialism, the first argument in favor of this future literal reign of the last Adam. A second argument is this, the incarceration of the devil, the incarceration of the devil. Look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Here John records this. This is that first vision that he sees related to this reign of Christ. He says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, the key issue here with this second argument in favor of premillennialism is this statement that John makes as he describes his vision, the statement that says this, and bound him for a thousand years. The angel comes down, he holds the key to the abyss and a great chain, he arrests Satan, binds him, and then puts him into the abyss for a thousand years. So the question now that, that arises from this is to what does the binding of Satan refer? Now for premillennialists, we view this binding of Satan as a consequence of the second coming of Christ, and, and it's therefore something that is future. It's something that will happen after Christ returns, after his second advent. As the text says, reading it in a straightforward manner, that as Christ returns, he defeats the nations, and then this powerful angel on Christ's behalf binds Satan and throws him into the abyss so that Satan does not interfere with the reign of Christ for a thousand years. Amillennialists and postmillennialists, on the other hand, believe that this binding of Satan, this incarceration of Satan, throwing him into the abyss and his, his time in the abyss for the thousand years, amillennialists and postmillennialists believe that this is descriptive of the church age prior to the coming of Christ. In other words, because they take Revelation 
20 verses 1 to 3 is prior to Revelation 19 verse 11 in chronological sequence that Satan is now bound. He is now in the abyss. He is now prevented from deceiving the nations. One post-millennialist, David Chilton, describes it with these words, quote, Before the first coming of Christ, Satan controlled the nations, but now his death grip has been shattered by the gospel as the good news of the kingdom has spread throughout the world. End quote. In other words, as the gospel advances, Satan's power, his ability to deceive, is lessened to the point where, as the gospel will eventually take over, Satan will not be able to interfere with that which takes place on the earth. That's the post-millennial view, or one of the post-millennial views. There's also the view of amillennialism. Herman Ritterbos, for example, describes the binding of Satan according to the amillennial view with these words. Quote, the great moment of the breaking down of Satan's rule has come, and at the same time, that of the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The redemption is no longer future, but has become present. In this struggle, it is Jesus himself who has broken Satan's power and who continues to do so. End quote. So in other words, for the amillennial view, it's Christ reigning in heaven who subdues Satan in the abyss and limits to a great degree the effect, the reach of Satan here on earth during the church age. So if you look at the, the slides here that I have up on the screen, if you look at premillennialism, premillennialism teaches that Satan will be literally incarcerated during Christ's future rule on the earth. Amillennialism will teach that Satan is figuratively incarcerated during the present church age, during which Christ reigns spiritually, and and that reign of Christ in the heavens is what subdues and incarcerates Satan in the abyss today. Then, of course, the view of postmillennialism not that different from amillennialism. Postmillennialism teaches that Satan is figuratively incarcerated during the era in which Christ reigns through the church on earth. Again, as the church, as the gospel spreads around the world, Satan is increasingly bound to the point where he will be severely limited as to his influence on the earth. But let's look back at the text for a few moments and see what John sees in this binding of Satan. And let's look at the language carefully. First of all, we see that this angel that comes down from heaven lays hold of and binds Satan. What's interesting here is that the same verbs are used in Mark chapter 6, verse 17, for example, to describe the procedure of arresting a prisoner. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 17, Herod uh, sends for John. He has John, first of all, arrested or laid hold of and bound. Herod has John the Baptist arrested and bound. The same verbs are used here in, in Revelation 20 to describe the angel arresting and binding Satan. 
Now, what we find here is is a parallel in the way that that arrests and confinement were described in that day. In the same way, John the Baptist himself was arrested and bound. We also see in Revelation 20 that the angel throws Satan, the devil, into the abyss and he seals and shuts it. And that language of shutting and sealing it is is used to refer to complete confinement. It's not like just kind of house arrest where a person can kind of come and go or, 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 or some kind of arrest where somebody can go during the day, but he's, he, he has to be back at a certain time in his home for a curfew. That's not what is being described here. The language used in Revelation 20 speaks of complete confinement. Moreover, Satan is thrown into the abyss, and that term for abyss is not a term that is, uh, that is used to refer to the earth, to the physical world, to the place that is below heaven. Instead, the word abyss is the term that is always used to describe the abode of the dead. It's used to describe the netherworld. It's used to describe the place below the earth. So for John to describe the angel confining and sealing Satan in the abyss, it, there is no parallel elsewhere to take that as, as the angel confining Satan to the physical world, to the place of living human beings. It is always a term that is used to refer to the netherworld. And the purpose, as we read in Revelation 20, of this confinement, of this incarceration, is as follows. Notice the end of verse 3, the end of this vision. It it describes the, the purpose of the confinement of Satan with these words, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. One premillennialist, Robert Mounts, describes it this way. Quote, the elaborate measures taken to ensure his custody are most easily understood as implying the complete cessation of his influence on earth rather than a mere curbing of his activities. Robert Thomas has similarly said this, quote, confinement to the abyss requires a complete termination of his activity in the sphere of the earth. The uniform testimony of the New Testament is that Satan is not bound during the period between Christ's two advents. Let's look at that now in in terms of how the New Testament describes Satan's activities during the church age. First of all, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 describes Satan as the god of this world. That reference, especially in the context there, does not refer to Satan as somehow subdued or limited. Instead, it speaks of him having great influence at blinding the minds of unbelievers today in this world. According to 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is described as the one in this world. John says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, referring to the arch enemy of our souls, Satan himself. Peter in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 describes Satan as prowling around 
like a roaring lion, not a shackled lion, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 14 describes Satan as active in this world, appearing as an angel of light. Acts 5 verse 3, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, Ephesians 4 verse 27, and so on, describe Satan as an actual source of temptation in this world. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18 describes Satan as hindering ministers of the gospel. Matthew 13 verse 19, Mark 4 15, Luke 8 12 describe Satan as snatching the seeds of the gospel that are sown by gospel ministers. We read in texts like Acts 26, 18, Ephesians 2, verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, 26, 1 John 5, 19, as holding unbelievers under his power. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, describes Satan as buffeting Paul. Ephesians 6, verses 11 to 17, describes Satan as attacking believers in the church. And the book of Revelation itself explains that Satan is engaged in efforts on this earth all the way up to the second coming of Christ. We read it throughout this book up until this point. There is no way in which Satan is described as being bound, incarcerated, shut up, and sealed in the abyss in the chapters leading up to Revelation chapter 19. Now, ultimately, all millennialists and postmillennialists concede that the wickedness and false teaching that we see in the world today are, are still traced to Satan's direct influence. You see that we all agree today, as we see of the, the horrendous depravity that once was celebrated in secret, now being promoted in public, even by the highest levels of the government even to the level of the president of the United States, promoting great evil and wickedness, both in word and through laws. All millennials and post-millennials will, will concede that, that this is due to the direct influence of Satan and his powers. So how do they reconcile that with their view that Satan is nonetheless incarcerated in the abyss? Well, what they do is they take that phrase that he is bound in the abyss, and they dismiss that as being merely symbolic, non-prophetic in nature. In other words, Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 3 and the binding of Satan is merely figurative. It is not to be taken literally. It is not prophetic in nature. Yet ironically, And inconsistently, they take the description before Revelation chapter 20, the description of Christ's second coming in 19 verse 11 to 21, and they take the description after the millennial in in Revelation chapter 20 as both being prophetic in nature, and yet this they do not. Charles Feinberg summarizes the argument very well with these words. He says, quote, one cannot have Satan bound and loose at the same time. The logic of language will not permit it. That's the second argument, the incarceration of Satan. Let's look at the third argument now, the co-regency of the saints, the co-regency of the saints. And we see this in Revelation chapter 20, verse Four. Notice 
the next vision that begins as part of Revelation chapter 20. Here we have another Kai a dawn, and I saw vision that begins as part of this millennial rule. John records this, verse 4, Then I saw thrones. So immediately after the incarceration of the devil, then we read in verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Now the question arises at this point, who sits on these thrones? Who is it that in this vision exercise authority over the earth? Authority, judgment was given to them. Now, since amillennialists and postmillennialists see this as a present and not a future reality, they describe the sitting on thrones and the exercise of judgment as something that belongs in the church age. It's something that is presently being done, either figuratively of the church here on earth or spiritually of, uh, of, of something that is happening in heaven. In fact, what amillennialists will do is they will take the reference here to the sitting on thrones, plural, and the exercising of judgment, plural, as a reference to the, the group that is, that is described in the book of Revelation as the 24 elders. They'll say this reference in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, the thrones and the, those sitting on the thrones and those exercising judgment is a, a direct reference to this group of individuals referenced earlier in the book, the 24 elders, and they will interpret those 24 elders as a symbolic representation of the church. In other words, it's the church that is ruling today. It's the church sitting on thrones. It's the church that is exercising judgment. Let's look at that then. Let's see whether the reference to the, the sitting on thrones is a, is a solid reference to these 24 elders. Now, it is true that the 24 elders are mentioned through this book and appear as, 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 as recent even in our study as Revelation chapter 19, verse 4. If we look at Revelation 19, verse 4, we read this, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. So right before the second coming of Christ, which begins in verse 11, you have the 24 elders in Revelation 19, verse 4, falling down and worshiping God uh, at that particular moment. But there are there are several problems, however, with carrying that group of people into Revelation chapter 21 and saying that those who sit on the thrones are the 24 elders. Here are the two problems with that view. First, the 24 elders are not mentioned in the immediate context of Revelation 20 verses 4 to 6. In fact, secondly, here's the second problem. There is a closer, more grammatically appropriate antecedent to the pronoun they that we find in Revelation 
chapter 20, verse 4. Notice that that's the issue there. As we look at Revelation 20, verse 4, it says, I saw thrones and they sat on them. So when you have a pronoun here, they, the question is, who is the antecedent? And the best logic is always to look for the antecedent that agrees in gender and in number with the pronoun that is used in a given text. So what is the nearest reasonable antecedent to the pronoun they that we find in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4? Now, as I said, uh, all millennialists, post-millennialists will take this all the way back to Revelation 19, verse 4 and say the 24 elders, that's the nearest referent. That's the, that's the antecedent referent to the they of Revelation 20, verse 4. However, there's a better one that stands much closer grammatically to our text of Revelation 20, verse 4. And that antecedent is found in Revelation chapter 19, verse 14. This describes now the second coming of Christ and the scene of what happens as Christ descends to this earth. We read this in verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, it's a it's a most logical antecedent because it is closer to the pronoun they of Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, than the 24 elders. Moreover, they are described in these judicial ruling terms already. They are the armies. They are clothed with a certain garment, and they are the ones uh, who come with the returning king. Then notice also a reference to verse uh, to, to this army in verse 19, even closer to Revelation 20, verse 4. John says this, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army collectively. So again, here we find a, a judicial description There is the concept of warfare and of governing, of ruling. These references in Revelation 19, verse 14, and Revelation 19, verse 19 fit much better, both grammatically and contextually, as the referent to the pronoun they in Revelation 20, verse 4. It's a much closer antecedent, a much clearer connection between these. Thus, we have this description of the armies who come with Christ from heaven to earth, coming to first have and exercise victory over the opposing kings and the nations, and then to also share with Christ as he sits on his throne, they then share in that reign, in that rule, on their thrones as well. Who is this army? Who is the one that is referenced, is depicted here? Well, this is the church. The church that has been snatched away, harpazo, from the earth to be presented before the Father blameless. We we can see that in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17, for example. The word harpazo, which we translate as rapture, 
they are snatched away from this earth. Or as Paul refers to in 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 First Thessalonians chapter one verse ten, the believers there were expecting to be taken, rescued from the wrath that is to come. That wrath refers to the day of the Lord judgment. They are snatched away from that, but they then return. This army returns with Christ, and they will then rule with him on thrones. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. And even in the book of Revelation, we read this, Revelation 2, verses 26 to 27, the letter that Christ dictates to the church at Thyatira. He says this, he who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Citing Psalm 2, verse 8, Jesus says to the, lay, or to the Thyatirans, to the church of, of, of Thyatira, that because of their incorporation into Christ, because of their unity, their union with him, therefore the promise that is given to Christ, to the Messiah of a future reign that is literal and physical in nature is going to be shared by those in Christ, those referring to the church, Believers in Christ will share in his reign because they share in Christ. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, he who overcomes, this is the the promise given to the church at Laodicea, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. Now notice the future tense here, and they will reign upon the earth. That's the argument of the co-regency of the saints, a straightforward, careful reading of that second vision of the millennium that begins in Revelation 20, verse 4, requires this to be yet future. There's a fourth argument for a premillennial reign of Christ, and that is what we find in the distinction of the resurrections. In this second vision described in Revelation chapter 20, particularly in verses 4 to 6, we see two resurrections, two resurrections that are seen by John as he sees this coming millennium. He writes this, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So two resurrections that are separated 
in John's vision by these thousand years. The first one occurs in it occurs at the beginning of this millennium very clearly that John describes it as happening at the very beginning of this millennium so that those who are dead come to life and are able to reign with Christ. And then there is a second one, a second resurrection of those who are resurrected at the end of that millennial reign. And there's a reason for that. We won't get into that uh, this morning. So see the, the difference there, the language that's used to d- describe two resurrections, and there's an intermediate period between these two resurrections of a thousand years. So the question arises, what is this first resurrection that precedes this rule of Christ? Everything rests on, on the nature of this first resurrection. Now, if you look at it this way, if you see the millennial rule that is described in Revelation 20, the thousand years, as as a present reality, as something that describes the church age, then you have to see the first resurrection of these souls, you have to see it as happening at the beginning of this church age. It is a resurrection that has already taken place. And then after the end of the church age, you, you have the next resurrection, the, the resurrection of those who were not resurrected for this millennial reign, taken figuratively according to amillennialism and postmillennialism. So there's a resurrection then that marks the start of the churchy, church age, or at least the start of the church's rule over this world. But when has that resurrection taken place? Immediately, amillennialists and Postmillennialists will say that you cannot take the first resurrection here in a literal sense. It is not a physical resurrection. Instead, they'll say, well, perhaps it re- relates to regeneration. Perhaps it relates to regeneration, the, the being made alive spiritually, or perhaps it even refers to glorification when the, the saint, the regenerated believer is, is, is glorified at the moment of his death. But in any case, that, that resurrection is not literal. But here's the problem. Amillennialists and postmillennialists take the verb come to life that is used twice, once in verse 4 and once in verse 5, and they arbitrarily change the meaning of this verb. So if you look at 20 verse 4, notice this. It says, they came to life. They came to life. It's the aorist, plural, active, indicative verb, azison. Azison. And it refers to resurrection. But they take that verb, 20 verse 4, they came to life, as referring to spiritual resurrection. But then in the very next verse, in 20 verse 5, you have the very same verb occurring in the very same tense. This is how it's translated. They did not come to life until. That's the second resurrection that's described there. And that postmillennialists and amillennialists will take to be a, an actual physical resurrection. What's more important to note here is that this verb, come to life, is used several times in Revelation. For example, 2 verse 8 and 13 verse 14. There, it's never used to refer to spiritual regeneration. It's never used to refer to glorification. 
it's always used to refer to physical resurrection. So, so why the arbitrary change in the nature of that verb? Well, if you take an amillennialist position and a postmillennialist position, you are forced by your theological pre-understanding to change the nuance of that first resurrection. Even more importantly, if you do that and you treat it as some kind of spiritual resurrection, regeneration, the question is, notice who it is that is being resurrected in 20 verse 4. Who is it? They are those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. Why is spiritual regeneration needed for those who were martyred for their faith? Doesn't make sense. There's no logical explanation for that. And so they'll say, well, that's a, a, a spiritual kind of resurrection that is represented by glorification. So in other words, those who are beheaded spend a time without glorification. They were martyred before the second coming of Christ, but were not glorified and have to to, uh, come at at, at some other time to be resurrected uh, in that glorification sense or something along those lines. It just, there is no reasonable explanation for, and this leads one theologian, Millard Erickson, to, to write this. He says this, because both the first and second resurrections are described in identical terminology, Azison came to life. And because no qualifying adjectives or adverbs or anything else indicate that the two resurrections are different in kind, they attempt to make them different. That attempt to make them different appears to be purely arbitrary. Indeed, it is. But the better way, the view of premillennialism, is that you take these resurrections simply, normally, in a straightforward fashion, consistently, and you see one resurrection occurring at the beginning of the millennium. That is a resurrection of the martyred saints that were, who were martyred during the tribulation period prior to the second coming of Christ, they are resurrected in order for them to share in the rule over this earth. And then you have another kind of resurrection, the same physical resurrection, but another resurrection that happens at the end of this millennial period. Well, there's a fifth one, and we'll cap it off with this. A fifth argument, and this is more of a theological argument when looking at the entire scope of Scripture. In fact, it's this argument that takes us all the way back to the beginning. And this argument, the fifth one, is this, the necessity of the Adamic reign. Notice as we close verse 6, the end of this millennial section, John writes this, "'Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection.'" Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That concept of reigning over this world, this physical world, is a very important biblical motif. 
What's interesting is that the early church fathers believed this. They believed that Christ would return to this very earth and establish his millennial kingdom on earth. But but that premillennialism that marked the early church fathers was slowly eroded by what we call a spiritual vision model. It was slowly eroded over the centuries by a belief that God's purposes are ultimately spiritual or heavenly in nature and decreasingly material or earthly. For example, one who holds the spiritual vision model is Herman Bavinck, the Dutch Reformed theologian. And he says this, Kiliasm, uh, a belief in a thousand-year reign of Christ, he says this, is not of Christian but of Jewish and Persian origin. It is always based on a compromise between the expectations of an earthly salvation and those of a heavenly state of blessedness. It would appear that kiliasms or millennialism's strength lies in the Old Testament, but actually this is not the case. The Old Testament is decidedly not kiliastic. Well, we would have a lot to debate on that final statement there. Uh, The Old Testament certainly does speak much of a physical rule of the Messiah on this earth. But what Bavinck does is express this spiritual vision model, and the idea behind this model is as follows, that the material world is of least importance, of better importance is a combination of material and spiritual things, but of greatest importance is the spiritual realm. And so in the flow of redemption, you have it moving from something as physical as the Garden of Eden, this material reality, slowly taking on less and less material significance, more and more spiritual significance. And as as redemption reaches its climax, the material is completely done away with, and the most important thing is achieved, and that is a purely spiritual existence. Now, that's the spiritual vision model, and in such a model, there is very little place for Christ coming down from the privileged place of heaven to rule on this material earth. Craig Blazing describes the, this, uh, this view of the spiritual vision model as follows when he says this, ancient Christian premillennialism weakened to the point of disappearance when the spiritual vision model of eternity became dominant in the church. A future kingdom on earth simply did not fit well in an eschatology that stressed personal ascent to a spiritual realm, end quote. He's summarizing the views of a lot of theologians today who have very little place for anything to do with this current physical world. It just needs to be rolled up, crumpled up, and thrown in the wastebasket, destroyed. Let's get on to the new heavens and the new earth, whatever they may be. But why is a future earthly kingdom necessary? In light of the entire scope of biblical history, why is a future earthly kingdom still necessary? Let me answer it very simply. It is necessary to complete unfinished business. 
It is necessary to complete unfinished business. Let's go to the very first chapter of the Bible. And I do believe there is a connection here between the end of our Bibles, this prophetic book which speaks of future things, the eschaton. There is a connection that we come to in, from Revelation 20 back to what was not realized in in Genesis chapter 1. For example, Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28 reads as follows. Then God said, understand this is the pinnacle of God's creative week, the sixth day. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What was God's purpose in creating male and female in his image? They were given the task to rule this world under God. The first Adam was given the responsibility to reign as God's representative over this material world. Now, did he do that? We know the answer is no. And the scriptures consistently testify that that original creation mandate was never fully fulfilled Sin entered the world and immediately disrupted the purpose for which God had created man in terms of that Adam, that first Adam's purpose in the garden and over all the world. But that purpose is not ultimately frustrated and never has been frustrated because it is all moving toward this final Adam, this second Adam, this last Adam, who will receive all the glory because he did what the first Adam could not do. Michael Vlock captures this well when he writes this, quote, Jesus as the last Adam is destined to successfully rule from and over the realm of earth that was tasked to the first Adam. Adam failed. But the last Adam will succeed. Jesus' kingdom reign will be from and over this earth, and he will share his reign with his followers and complete the kingdom mandate of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Now, we recognize the importance of this representational function of the last Adam with respect to the responsibility to obey uh, obey God's law, right? We recognize that Christ, as the second Adam, as the last Adam, did what the first Adam could not do with the responsibility to obey God's law. Read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. There the apostle Paul focuses on that and says the first Adam failed in obedience to God's law. The second Adam did not. The first Adam and his, dis- and his obedience to, to God's law was marked by failure. It was marked by sin. It was marked by death. But as Paul goes on to say there, the last Adam 
with respect to obedience to God's law was marked by success. It was marked by righteousness. It was marked by life. The same thing is true with respect to the creation mandate, not just with respect to obedience to God's law. We must recognize the importance of the last Adam with respect to the responsibility to rule God's creation, not only to obey God's law, but to rule the the, the creation as God originally designed in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. The first Adam with respect to his reign over God's world, was, again, marked by failure. It led to chaos and to decay. But the last Adam and his reign over God's world, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, as well as a myriad of texts in the New Testament, in, 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 in the Gospels, in Paul's writings, in John's writings, in Peter's writings, as well as in the Old Testament. A myriad of texts describe this last Adam's reign as one of success, as one of justice, of order, and of prosperity. Therefore, let me challenge you with this. Full representational headship is only represented in premillennialism. Full representational headship in all of the things that God has given man to do is only upheld in its fullest extent by the premillennial position, which believes that Christ will return to this earth as the last Adam and will reign literally and physically over this earth world. And that is the victory. It's that where our hope is found. It's not that we somehow by our efforts in the Great Commission will be the victors. It is Christ who will do what man cannot do in the fullest, most literal sense And he has already proven himself capable during his first advent. Advent, He fulfilled what the first Adam could not. He fulfilled the law. And now in his second advent, he will fulfill what the first Adam could not do. The creation mandate. That is our Jesus. That is our Lord and Savior. And we will one day relish to see him with our eyes ruling and reigning on this earth.